Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Today on Inside Politics, a pivotal meeting about the crisis at the southern border. President Biden sending two top cabinet officials to Mexico City to meet with the Mexican president. Will a new plan emerge to stop the unprecedented number of illegal border crossings? Plus, a new survey shows voters associate Donald Trump with words like revenge and dictatorship. And believe it or not, the GOP frontrunner seems to be bragging about it. And it's time to say goodbye to 2023. We've got a countdown of the biggest political stories of the year. I'm Phil Mattingly in for Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. And at this hour, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas headed to Mexico, meeting with the Mexican president about the crisis along the southern border. The goal, convince him to take action to help stop tens of thousands of migrants before they reach U.S. territory. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez leads us off from the White House today. Priscilla, what does the administration hope to actually get out of this trip from a policy perspective? Well, Phil, simply put, they want help to drive down the number of border crossings that administration officials have been seeing creep up over the last several weeks. Now, this is not what the president wanted to have to face heading into the 2024 presidential election, because this, of course, is not only a logistical challenge for the administration, it's also a political one as he faces heat from Republicans and Democrats. So the senior U.S. officials going into these meetings with requests from Mexico to try to get more help to drive down these numbers. What those look like, according to the officials I've spoken with, include, for example, moving migrants who are on the northern border of Mexico further south to decongest that area, as well as controlling railways. Those are used by migrants to more quickly get to the U.S. southern border and also providing incentives like visas for migrants to remain in Mexico and not make the journey nor to the U.S. southern border. Now, all of this is an extension of a call that took place between President Biden and the Mexican president just last week, where the two agreed that additional enforcement was urgently needed. Now, numbers since then have dropped slightly, according to a Homeland Security official I spoke with. The number yesterday of encounters at the U.S. southern border was around 6,000. Compare that to earlier this month, when they were over 10,000 encounters on a daily basis. So that's summer pre for the border towns, but officials are chalking that up in part to the holidays. So they're still bracing for what could happen in the days to come. And all of this ratcheting up the pressure on President Biden to do what he can and work with his Mexican counterpart to try to get some relief for these border towns. Yeah, some near-term relief. There's no long-term relief without Congress. Those negotiations still ongoing. Priscilla Alvarez forced the White House. Thanks very much. And one of the border towns hit hardest by the historic surge of migrants is Eagle Pass, Texas. Here's what their mayor told CNN. Our city here in Eagle Pass, we've been getting slammed with two to 3,000 people a day. And it's just a, an unfair, unethical situation. What's going on here in Eagle Pass, we feel ignored by the federal government. Let's discuss with our great panel of political reporters. Joining me now, CNN's Kristen Holmes, Zolan Keno-Youngs of the New York Times, and Jessica Washington of The Root. Zolan, this is your 
area of expertise. You know more about this maybe other than Priscilla than anybody I know. In terms of what administration officials and their Mexican counterparts will be talking about today, is there anything that can have a dramatic effect on what we've seen the last several weeks? Oh man, a dramatic effect. I think that that remains to be seen. Look, I mean, for really throughout the Biden administration, I mean, really the past few administrations, often when you look at the border, uh, officials are discussing sort of short-term plans and solutions to drive down mm -hmm. crossings. Um, I should say that there is a history as well, and these caravans have become more frequent, and they do tend to break apart when going through Mexico and tend to get smaller on the way to the U.S. But to your question of can they actually have any plans that dramatically drive down crossings, I don't know how you can do that when you're just talking about two nations here. This is now a hemisphere-wide issue where you have migrants coming from Venezuela that are making their way through Panama as well as through Costa Rica. And unless you're able to establish collaborative solutions with each of those nations, I don't know exactly how you're able to really address this issue in the long term. I just spent time south of the border uh, covering Latin America for the past couple months. And in Costa Rica, you essentially have buses of uh, picking up migrants as soon as they get out of the Darien Gap, driving them north to the Northern Triangle and on the way to the U.S. It's now a hemisphere-wide issue. Yeah, it's such a good point. Your, your piece on, on busing in that area w was excellent. I think that the fact people have almost missed the point of the nuance here that it's no longer just Northern Triangle countries as it was a couple of administrations ago. The populations that are coming, including from places like Venezuela and Cuba, make everything uh, astronomically more difficult. And Jessica, I think that leads into there are negotiations. There are bipartisan negotiations about some type of immigration plan. And it comes as we hear not just Republicans upset with the administration, but Democratic governors and Democratic mayors upset and frustrated. Listen. We've had an uncoordinated approach without significant federal support. Um, this is not sustainable. The federal government said to New York City, we're not going to do our job. You do our job. <laughs> you take care of 4,000 people a week, Eric, you and your team. I am not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel um, from the federal government. Jessica, does the bipartisan pressure drive this administration closer to trying to make any kind of deal with Republicans in the Senate? Certainly. I mean, I think what's complicated the matter, obviously, is that this has been now connected. Border security has become an issue that is connected now to all different types of foreign policy issues, including Ukraine, including Israel. You know, I interviewed um, minority leader uh, Hakeem Jeffries last week. And what he was telling me is that, you know, at least from his perspective, he's not interested in a deal that only capitulates to these kind of short-term right-wing uh, solutions to immigration. He's really looking for a deal that's more long-term. Now, I will say Democrats do kind of always say that. Everyone says that on immigration. And so it's, you know, we'll have to wait and see if there's actually going to be any kind of deal that addresses this issue in a long-term way that feels good to everyone, that actually addresses the humanitarian crisis as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. It's a fascinating moment in this now decades-long debate where nothing ever seems to get done. Kristen, from a political perspective, I think a lot of people have probably gotten used to talking about this as a Republican base issue or a Republican issue that doesn't necessarily move into the top two or three categories 
in a general election, that seems to be shifting. If you look at the numbers, President Biden's numbers right now uh, on immigration, 26 percent approved, 69 percent disapprove. And I think perhaps more interestingly and underscoring the fact that Hispanic voters are not a monolith, they are not a single issue voting block. But Biden at 47 percent in the New York Times, uh, Siena poll in the likely electorate most recently, Trump in 35 percent. Yes, that's a lead, but it's significantly less than the exits from 2020. What does this all say for the Trump campaign and what they're doing right now? Well, Phil, you played those clips of Democratic mayors. They really played just like a Republican ad during a general, really pointing to the fact that this isn't now just a Republican focus point, but it's also a Democratic focus point. And you can be sure that no matter who the Republican nominee is, particularly if it's Donald Trump, there's going to be a huge focus on immigration. You talk about it being one of the top issues. Well, other than the economy and abortion for Democrats, immigration is a leading issue for so many people across the country. And again, you are seeing this uptick in rhetoric from Democrats as well, which is increasing the pressure, but it's also giving Republicans, and particularly in a 2024 presidential election year, a lot of ammunition to make this a top issue, to bring it to the forefront, as they have been trying to do for several years. Solon, when you were down reporting uh, in Mexico City in the region, Do they view things through the 2024 context, knowing that Donald Trump is the likely Republican nominee, concerned perhaps, particularly uh, the Mexican president, about what that might bring? I I, I think there's there's certain look, people and officials in the region are always paying attention to U.S. politics as well as the election cycle as well. Um, You know, uh, the relationship between the Mexican government and the Trump administration was obviously uh, tense at times with you had uh, at that time the former president threatening tariffs, threatening to shut down the border. That would impact not just migration, but also you have Mexican officials worried about the collateral damage when it comes to commerce as well and their economy. Um, so, of course, that was definitely concerned. But I have to say as well, when I was down there, I noticed that uh, tensions were increasing even right now between the Mexican government and the Biden administration, not just with this issue, but also with how to address something like fentanyl trafficking as well. Um, AMLO has always been somebody that has tried to push the Biden administration to address this issue by giving more U.S. aid. Uh, as well as trying to address root causes in the region. Um, But you can expect that Biden administration officials today will be trying to get assistance on the enforcement side, particularly with the southern border of Mexico as well. Jessica, you mentioned you talked to the Democratic leader of the House, Hakeem Jeffries. Is there any concern that if they get close to a deal, Donald Trump will come in and try and sink it for political purposes? Yeah. And so, I mean, that wasn't something that it came up in our interview. I think they're thinking more short term in terms of passing something in the very near future. Um, but I think certainly uh, Donald Trump is a wild card factor in these negotiations. Trump obviously is someone with a lot of very incredibly hard line immigration views. So I think that's certainly an an overtone of the entire conversation. I think also the way that Trump plays into this to a certain extent is Trump has always been the for progressives and Democrats, the immigration boogeyman. And so I think there's another political concern for Biden if he seems to go more to the right, does he not seem like a important alternative to Trump? So I think for the Biden administration, they've got to think about this politically, both from appeasing those Democratic governors you heard from, but also not alienating the progressive base that really cares about this issue and is really animated about it during the Trump administration.
Yeah, an extremely complex needle to thread. Guys, thank you very much. We could talk about this for another couple hours. I hope we do sooner rather than later. Appreciate it. Thanks very much to our panel. Now to another big story this morning. The Michigan Supreme Court rejecting an attempt to ban Donald Trump from the state's ballot based on the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. That decision, of course, coming just days after Colorado's highest court came to the exact opposite conclusion. CNN's Paula Reed joins me now from Washington. And Paul, look, this is just, it has to be the Supreme Court's ballgame now. Is that fair? That's completely fair. And just another example of how the U.S. Supreme Court could be such uh, an influencing factor uh, in the 2024 election. Now, the question here is ballot eligibility. And this is something that has been litigated uh, across multiple states with varying outcomes. And here the question is whether former President Trump can be kept off a state ballot of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment, which says that officials who engage in an insurrection are barred from holding future office. Now, this was something that was designed uh, to keep uh, former Confederates uh, out of out of office. It's been used twice in the past hundred years. But also note that this provision does not specifically state the presidency. The president is among the, those who would be barred from holding future office. Now, the Colorado Supreme Court, as you noted, They surprised a lot of people uh, last week when they ruled that Trump can be kept off the ballot in that state. That was surprising because lower courts in that state had held that while they do believe he engaged in an insurrection, they held a trial, that was their finding. They said that because this provision of the Constitution didn't specifically state uh, the president uh, among the list of people who should be barred from holding future office if they engage in an insurrection, that they couldn't keep him off the ballot. So when the state Supreme Court went the other way, that surprised uh, a lot of people. And it is expected that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, will take up this issue. Now, we see here in Michigan, they went the other way, even though it was more of a procedural decision. They didn't have a trial. Um, But while Trump is praising this, and not surprisingly, praising this decision in Michigan, in Michigan and Minnesota, they left the door open, even though they said, look, you can't be banned here for the primary. They left the door open. And when it comes to the general election, so Phil, Unless the Supreme Court weighs in and gives us some clarity about exactly uh, what the 14th Amendment says, it's possible that this whole issue could come back up again for the general election if he's the nominee. Because it's not confusing or complex enough. Paula Reed, we appreciate it as always. And coming up next, many more months. That's how long Israel's military chief warns the war in Gaza could last. It's probably not what the Biden administration wants to hear. More on that ahead. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. The top Israeli officials in Washington this week as the White House continues to press Israel to shift to the next phase of fighting. But on the Gaza border, Israel's military chief said the war will continue for, quote, many more months. There are no magic solutions. There are no shortcuts in dismantling a terrorist organization. Only determined and persistent fighting. Elliot Gotkin is live for us in Tel Aviv. Elliot, the disconnect between what you've heard U.S. officials say publicly and what seems to be happening on the ground is fairly clear. Is there any sign right now that the nature of the war could be changing in the near term? Not hugely, Phil, to be perfectly honest. And as part of those comments, part of that briefing, uh, Halevi also saying that uh, we are increasing the pressure in various ways. They're constantly learning and constantly adapting to dealing with the enemy, to dealing with Hamas. But in terms of the communications we get from the Israelis, from the IDF on a daily basis, it seems to be war as usual, namely striking from air, land and sea, taking out uh, infrastructure, weapon storage facilities, militants themselves, discovering tunnels and other weapons and the like underneath civilian infrastructure like schools, mosques and hospitals. Those are the communications we get uh, from uh, the IDF. And I suppose the reason why the uh, method of war is staying the same is because the objectives of the war from Israel's point of view have remained the same and haven't yet been achieved, namely destroying Hamas militarily so that it can never again uh, visit uh, an atrocity of the sort that we saw on October the 7th again, as it has promised to do, to prevent Hamas from continuing to stay in power at the end of this war and to get those hostages home, more than 100 of whom are still believed to be alive. One thing that may change at some point could be what's going on in the north, because let's not forget that Iran's proxy Hezbollah is continuing to fire towards Israel. Israel is continuing to retaliate against Hezbollah positions uh, in Lebanon, in southern Lebanon as well. And just today, Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen, on a tour of the border, was warning to uh, Hezbollah and its leader, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, that all options are on the table. Phil? Yeah, and an escalation uh, there or in other parts of the region is something U.S. officials have made very clear they do not want. It's interesting. I mean, a top advisor to the prime minister, uh, Ron Dermer, was at the White House yesterday meeting for more than four hours with top national security officials. What do we know about what happened in that meeting? Well, they discussed a number of things, but important to note the importance of Derma. He is one of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's closest confidants. He's the Minister for Strategic Affairs. He's part of the War Cabinet, and he's a former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. when Barack Obama was in the White House, when, of course, the Vice President was the now President, Joe Biden. They discussed a number of things, four points, essentially. First of all, the end game of the current phase of the war, to move from this intensive bombing campaign, uh, which has led to, according to the Hamas-run Health Ministry, more than 20,000 Palestinians being killed. Uh, most of them, they say, women and children, though they don't distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. They, they discuss moving from that phase to a phase where they are just targeting high-value Hamas targets, bringing the hostages home, and what happens at the end of this war. Phil? Elliot, when it comes to that last point, I think that's the one where there just doesn't seem to be great answers for obvious reasons. Is there any sense that directionally things are moving towards some type of endgame, some type of outcome that both regional players, the U.S. and also Israel can, can see working? 
Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that post-Gaza needs to be ruled by uh, uh, whoever it is, if it's a, a reformed Palestinian authority that's de-radicalized, in his words, with no presence of Hamas whatsoever, demilitarized as well. And Israel's demands would require Hamas to surrender or to be defeated. There's no sign of that happening just yet. The U.S. seems to be more open to having the Palestinian Authority as is, which of course administers parts of the West Bank, taking control post-Gaza. But Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, has himself said that he would only do so if there was a clear pathway towards a two-state solution, which seems a very long way off. And for now, that last point what happens at the end of this war? Who will rule Gaza? That point seems to be perhaps one of the biggest differences between the Israeli government and the position of the United States. Phil? All right, Elliot Gutkin, thanks so much. And coming up, the latest polling showing former President Trump with a commanding lead in the Republican field and a near tie between him and President Biden in a general election matchup. But how predictive are those polls 11 months out? That's next. Well, believe it or not, we're less than three weeks, just 19 days until the Iowa caucuses and former President Trump continuing to lean in to concerns about his penchant for authoritarianism. A survey from the Daily Mail asked voters what words they associated with Trump that yielded this word cloud you're looking at right now, which Trump proudly shared on his social media platform. The biggest words, revenge, dictatorship and power. Many of Trump's voters don't seem to think, see those as bad things. Now, according to the latest Des Moines Register poll, 43% of likely Iowa caucus goers said statements like Trump having, quote, no choice but to lock up his political opponents didn't actually matter. 36% said Trump saying the 2020 election justifies terminating parts of the Constitution doesn't impact their decision of whether to support him. Joining me now to discuss this and so much more, two of the absolute best in the business, Anna Greenberg and Neil Newhouse. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Neil, I want to start with you less so on where things stand heading into Iowa and more so on that language kind of really diving in on the idea of revenge uh, or I am your retribution, how that plays in a general election. Is that something that you think will resonate with a broader population of people? Um. Phil, I mean, you got to you know, step back for a second and, and truthfully look at what former President Trump has said over the last five or six years. And I don't think you're going to find anything that really surprises voters, what he's saying right now. I think it's going to have a negligible impact on, you know, a, a 2024 election. Voters already know that he is inclined to say things off the cuff, that he's a little bit wild in his statements, and they don't you know, they don't take him at his word for that. I don't think it's going to mean, big scheme of things. It's not going to have much impact at all, Phil. So what does? I mean, I think that's my biggest question. And it's not just because I have to cover it every single day. And I'm trying to figure out what, what to focus on and what not to. But Neil, when you're looking at kind of the dynamics of this race right now, what do you think matters from the Trump campaign perspective? Um, what, well, first of all, it's a two-way race. I mean, Trump versus, I mean, it looks like. I mean, it, let's assume yeah. for a second, for argument's sake, that, you know, Trump's a nominee and, and Biden's a nominee on the Democratic side. Um, you, What matters in the Trump point of view is establishing that he is going to go back and do it and, and reestablish a strong economy, um, address immigration, um, address the crime issue. He's going to hit hard on the issues he feels strongly about. It's a two-way race. And you've got, in the last, you know, three elections, you've had 
some of the most unpopular presidential candidates in the history of political polling. Hillary and Trump, Trump and Biden, and now Trump and Biden potentially again. And it's the lesser of two evils. Um, and so you, you've got a very weak president that is running against the same guy I ran against before. But if you look, if you, if you look at where the numbers are right now, a year after the election, if the election were held today, Trump would win. But I did, as you, you may know, I did Mitt Romney's polling. A yeah. year out from that election, Mitt Romney would have been president. But as you said in the beginning, it's a long ways away from election day. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot that's going to go on. The economy could turn around some. It is a toss-up election right now. Um, but it's it's anybody's game. It's a hard, going to be a hard-fought campaign. And to that point, and I want to build on kind of the, the bigger picture longer term in a second, but on the Neil makes a very good point in the sense that a lot of people just kind of tune out the, the Trump tweets or truths, whatever we're calling them now, mm-hmm. um, his kind of playing footsie with Sean Hannity on the idea of being a dictator. But it does feed directly into kind of a central thesis of the Biden team, which is the, the democracy is on the ballot, right? It, it worked in 2022 more so than I think any of the talking heads appreciated in the lead up to it. And in the most recent Biden campaign memo, they said every single day, mm-hmm. Donald Trump and the extreme MAGA Republican Party are telling us the quiet part out loud. If they take power, they will do everything they can to dismantle American democracy and continue stripping Americans of their hard fought and fundamental freedoms. Basically saying this is a contrast uh, that they are happy to have in this campaign. Do you think that's effective? I do. I mean, I, I sort of disagree with Neil that people discount what Trump says. What we actually see is that when Trump is in the news, and not just on Fox or on True Social, but actually in the mainstream news and getting a lot of attention from the cable networks uh, around things that he does, his numbers get worse. <clears throat> so, for example, you know, in 2022 and 2021 and 22, when we had all of the issues of the documents at Mar-a-Lago, you know, you saw not just Trump do worse in the polls, but Republicans around the country do worse. And then when that recedes, things kind of get back to a little bit of a more of a, an equilibrium, if you will. Trump simply is not, even though we think about him every day, or I do, and Neil does, and you do, you know, for most people, they're not thinking about him. And when he's back in the mainstream, when he's on TV, when he's in people's faces, they're reminded not just of the fundamental threats to democracy, but chaos, vulgarity, aggressiveness, hostility meanness. This is not something that people actually want. Furthermore, I think where he has gone, which is a different place post January 6th, and whether it's talking about upending the civil, the civil service or being a dictator on day one, so you can have the wall, wall, wall. We know in 2022, as you mentioned, that democracy was on the ballot. It, there was not a lot of advertising about it. In fact, people were critical of Joe Biden when he gave a speech about democracy right before the 2022 election. Well, it turned out when you ask people who voted Democratic in 2022, why they did, the two top issues were abortion and democracy, and those things are also intertwined. I see no reason why that's not going to be part of what this conversation is about, you know, next November, just like it was in 2022. Anna, can I ask you about polling as in the, the science? <laughs> because I'm always, we're all trying to figure out what everything means now, and there's a million different polls around, and you're trying to recross tabs and see what's different, what's consistent, what the trend lines are. But also, President Biden weighs in on polls every once in a while. Um, he might be a little bit biased, given how some of them haven't been great for him over the course of the last several months. But he, he made a point at a fundraiser uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, he said it, it doesn't mean a lot right now, in my view, either way in polls. Those of you who know the business, it's awful hard. You know, you've got to call. You got to make about 20 calls to get one person to answer the cell phone. Seriously, yeah. he, he said something akin to this several times from a pure 
like how this works in practice for you, Anna, what do you trust when you're looking at numbers? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, first of all, he's, he's not wrong, but I always say to my clients, if you're arguing, arguing about polling, you're probably losing. So I never, I always advise my clients not to talk about polls because if you're fighting with the polls and the pundits, you, you're not focusing on, on talking to voters and getting votes. Um, and I think that the public polling, there's wide variation in quality. There's wide variation in how data are collected. Um, some public polls are done through traditional phone research. Some are done online. Some are done on cell. Some are done on landline. And so there's some use the voter file. Some don't. And so there's wide variation in the quality and data collection. And they're not terribly predictive a year out, as Neil pointed out. But in part because what really matters is what happens at the state and congressional district level. Those polls are actually what matter. And so a lot of the public polling at the state and local level, the congressional level, are even poorer quality than national polls. So I tend to not pay a lot of attention to public polling and a lot more attention to the polling that are done for campaigns, which are sort of rigorous, gold standard, and have actually been, notwithstanding some hiccups in 2020, pretty accurate over the last six years. Yeah, it's a very good point. There's only about a million more polls to go before we actually <laughs> start counting the votes in November. Yep. Uh, I'm told we got to go. Neil, uh, we will definitely be paying attention to Neil's polls because they're always very good. We appreciate you guys very much. (laughs) Well, coming up as the curtain comes down on 2023, we'll look back at the biggest political stories of the year, including this one. I was not a drag queen in Brazil, guys. I was young and I had fun at a festival. Sue me for having a life. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. While 2024 may have the presidential election, 2023 it didn't really fall short of political drama at all, from corruption allegations to an almost never-ending fight for the speaker's gavel to a lawmaker caught on, oh, so many lies. CNN's Eva McCann takes a look back at the top 10 political stories of the year. When it comes to the top 10 political stories of 2023, This was another big year with unprecedented chaos in Washington, courtroom spectacles, and accusations of brazen corruption. At number 10, Senator Bob Menendez faces corruption-related charges. But you're being accused of aiding a foreign government. Why is that appropriate for you to go to a classified briefing? Bottom line is, I'm a United States senator, I have my security credentials, and an accusation is just that. It's not proof of anything. Menendez and his wife are accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes, including gold bars, cash, and a luxury vehicle in exchange for the senator's influence. The indictment led Menendez to step aside as chair of the powerful Foreign Relations Committee. But the New Jersey Democrat and his wife maintain their innocence and have pleaded not guilty. He has pledged to remain in his seat despite calls from many lawmakers to resign including from some of his fellow Senate Democrats. At number nine, 
A moving tribute to Rosalind Carter, the former first lady, humanitarian, and mental health advocate. Former President Jimmy Carter emerges from hospice care to attend a public memorial service, paying tribute to his late wife, which also brought together the First Ladies Club. The Carters became internationally known for their humanitarian work after Carter's stinging presidential defeat in 1980. They have the longest marriage in presidential history at 77 years. Number eight, Hunter Biden's high-stakes plea agreement with federal prosecutors falls apart. The prosecutors who came forward to us and were the ones to say, can there be a resolution short of a prosecution? Now he's facing three federal firearms charges and nine new tax charges. The case could pose another challenge to President Joe Biden's re-election bid with House Republicans also investigating the president's son and pursuing an impeachment inquiry into the Democratic incumbent. So far, the GOP-led probe has struggled to uncover wrongdoing by the president. I'm here today to make sure that the House committee's illegitimate investigations of my family do not proceed on distortions, manipulated evidence, and lies. Number seven, foreign wars create political fractures at home from the halls of Congress to college campuses. President Biden calling on Americans to unite behind Israel and Ukraine in their respective conflicts. American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances will keep us, America, safe. But the president facing skepticism from Republicans on providing more aid to Ukraine. Republicans uh, disagree amongst themselves about exactly how we should respond to the Ukraine question. And pressure from some in the progressive wing of Biden's own party over Israel. President Biden, not all America's with you on this one. And you need to wake up and understand that. Number six, the Republican race for the White House takes shape. We're going to win the Iowa caucuses. So that's Donald Trump closes out the year as the commanding frontrunner for the GOP nomination as his rivals battle to emerge as the leading alternative to the former president. After entering the race as the top threat to Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's rise was slowed amid a shaky campaign launch and a series of campaign resets. Uh, we are going to have this debate in Iowa uh, before the caucus. I will be there. Donald Trump should be there. Meanwhile, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley gained momentum late in the year after several strong debate performances. Where have y'all been? <laughs> Amid Trump's dominance, several GOP hopefuls dropped out before the calendar turned to 2024, including former Vice President Mike Pence, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Number five, the potency of abortion rights in a post-Roe America. More than a year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, abortion rights proved to be a galvanizing issue for Democrats. We want to protect abortion access. Helping deliver victories for Democratic candidates in off-year elections in Virginia and deep red Kentucky and voters in Ohio passing a ballot measure to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. We did it! 
Number four, President Joe Biden announces his reelection bid facing significant political headwinds and setting up a potential rematch with Donald Trump. It's time to finish the job. Finish the job. Biden's bid for a second term is imperiled by stubbornly low approval ratings and persistent questions about his age. His campaign leaning on his legislative record and drawing a contrast with his 2020 rival. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. The MAGA movement. Despite weariness from some Democrats, Biden is expected to face little resistance in winning the party's nomination in 2024, drawing long-shot challenges from Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips and author Mary Ann Williamson. Several third-party candidates have also announced, including Robert Kennedy Jr. and progressive scholar Cornell West, who could turn into wild cards in the general election. Number three. Embattled Congressman George Santos expelled. I don't care. The U.S. House voted to expel the New York Republican after a scathing ethics report in a year-long swirl of controversy about Santos's litany of lies. Santos becomes just the sixth member in history to be expelled from Congress and the third since the Civil War. Why would I want to stay here? The hell with this place. After winning a battleground House district, major pieces of Santos's biography fell apart, including his claims around his education, professional experience, and family background. Santos was later indicted on federal charges, including wire fraud and money laundering, but pleaded not guilty and has denied the allegations. And I'm not really commenting on the ongoing uh, investigation. Santos reemerged soon after being removed from office on the celebrity video message site Cameo. Well, happy, happy birthday! Number two, Kevin McCarthy becomes the first House Speaker removed from the post. McCarthy's ouster came 10 months after he claimed the gavel, following a floor fight that went five days and took 15 rounds of voting that divided the GOP and saw the California Republican bend to a series of concessions to hardline conservatives. In the end, eight House Republicans joined with Democrats to depose McCarthy. Because it's just a few, these eight, working with all the Democrats to ruin the reputation of the Republicans. The move sparked weeks of chaos and infighting among House Republicans as they struggled to coalesce around a successor before ultimately voting to elevate little-known Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson as the new speaker. I, I want to thank you all for the trust that you have instilled in me. Number one, the country's 45th president and leading Republican presidential candidate becomes the first former president to face criminal charges. I won't be able to go to Iowa today. I won't be able to go to New Hampshire today because I'm sitting in a courtroom. Trump is facing 91 criminal counts, ranging from conspiracy to obstruct justice to racketeering across four separate jurisdictions in New York, Washington, D.C., Georgia, and Florida, Trump denying all those accusations. An indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The defendants engaged in a criminal 
racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. The Fulton County, Georgia indictment resulting in this historic image, the first mugshot of a former U.S. president. The former president regularly turning his courtroom appearances into campaign-style events. This is a witch hunt the likes of which probably nobody has ever seen. In a preview of 2024, when the political and legal calendars are set to collide. Eva McKend, CNN, Washington. Up next, new worries about safety for members of Congress. A lawmaker warning a violent assault or assassination isn't a question of if, but when. Political rhetoric in the country seems more charged than ever at this point, and a central target for many, uh, for the anger that many Americans feel, are members of Congress. We've seen protests over the Israel-Gaza war grow violent on Capitol Hill, vandalism at lawmakers' offices, incidents of swatting at their homes. Democratic Congressman Richie Torres joined Laura Coates last night and had this stark warning. Look, I do worry that intimidation and incitement of hate could easily escalate into violence. And, you know, most members of Congress, like myself, have no security. We're soft targets. Mm. And I do worry that, you know, a, a violent assault or even an assassination of a member of Congress is not a question of if, it's it's a question of when. You really and I want to be so. crystal clear. You really I, I mean, so, given the fact that most, I mean, members of Congress have, I, members of Congress have no security. Every year, the U.S. Capitol Police investigate thousands of threats, which grew sharply after the January 6th insurrection in 2021. They looked into 7,501 cases in 2022. That's the last year for which data is available, down from 2021, but still historically high. Now, Congressman Torres says he's unfazed, although he cautioned he and his fellow members of Congress, quote, cannot take their safety for granted. Thanks for joining Inside Politics. Seeing a new Central starts right after the break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.